landslide. Donald Trump delivers a big win in South Carolina and comes one step closer to the Republican nomination. South Carolina, thank you very much. Can anything stop his march to the general election? 40% is not some tiny group. Trump supporter, Texas Governor Greg Abbott joins me exclusively. And in limbo, the world marks two years of Vladimir Putin's brutal war in Ukraine. The um, homeland will not become Putin's backyard. But as Ukraine struggles, can the U.S. House agree on sending desperately needed aid? The costs of inaction getting higher. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is next. Plus, Great Lake Stakes. The Biden campaign gears up for a swing state primary. Michigan voices matter. Will frustration over the situation in Gaza hurt Biden's support among Michigan Democrats? Governor Gretchen Whitmer will be here exclusively. Hello, I'm Dana Bash in Washington, when the state of our union is watching another primary election blowout. Donald Trump is celebrating another victory today, a landslide win in South Carolina, the home state of his remaining GOP rival, former Governor Nikki Haley. There's never been, ever, there's never been a spirit like this. And I just want to say that I have never seen the Republican Party so unified as it is right now. Never been like this. Does anyone seriously think Joe Biden or Donald Trump will unite our country to solve our problems? Haley vowed to continue her fight at least through Super Tuesday, nine days from now. And coming up, I'll speak to Governors Greg Abbott and Gretchen Whitmer about the presidential race. But first, Trump's win last night proves again his incredible grip on the GOP base. This past week, we saw his influence shaping U.S. policy on the world stage. As Ukraine marked two years since Russia's invasion, and it's unclear whether Trump's allies in Congress will allow a vote on desperately needed aid for that effort. Here with me now is President Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan. Jake, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Ukraine is marking two years of the war. They are running desperately low on weapons, on ammunition. American aid, as you well know, has dried up because of opposition from Republicans and Russian forces are advancing up and down the front lines. Just how dire is the situation there right now? And is the United States failing Ukraine? Well, first, Anna, I think it's important to take a step back and remember that two years ago, Everyone was predicting that Ukraine was going to fall, that Kyiv, the capital, was going to fall, that Russia was going to dominate and subjugate its neighbor. And that has not happened. Two years later, Kyiv stands, Ukraine stands. Ukraine, in fact, has taken back half the territory that Russia initially occupied. So Russia has already failed in its fundamental objective to subjugate Ukraine. And now the question is, can Ukraine continue to stand fast against the Russian onslaught and push it back? And there, they do have to rely upon their own courage and bravery, which they have in spades, and on resources and capacity from the West, including the United States. And we are not able to give them what they need at this time because Congress has not acted to provide us with the necessary funding to do that. And we're asking Congress, especially the House of Representatives, after a bipartisan vote in the Senate, to move fast 
so that we can once again supply Ukraine with the tools it needs to win this fight. Well, on that note, a White House spokesperson said this week that, quote, Speaker Johnson is siding with Putin over the well-being of the American people, Ukraine and NATO. It's pretty strong language. Is that your view? Is the House Speaker siding with Vladimir Putin? Look, I'm not going to talk about motives. I'm just going to talk about reality. And the reality reality is that there is a strong... Well, the reality is that Putin gains every day that Ukraine does not get the resources it needs and Ukraine suffers. And there is a strong bipartisan majority in the House standing ready to pass this bill if it comes to the floor. And that decision rests on the shoulders of one person. And history is watching whether Speaker Johnson will put that bill on the floor. If he does, it will pass. We'll get Ukraine what it needs for Ukraine to succeed. If he doesn't, then we will not be able to give Ukraine the tools required for it to stand up to Russia. And Putin will be the major beneficiary of that. I want to ask about what is going on inside Russia right now. After delays and threats from Russian officials, Alexei Navalny's body has finally been turned over to his mother. We have seen security forces, though, crack down on mourners, protesters uh, in the wake of Navalny's death. His mother says officials tried to threaten her into holding a private funeral. Does the Russian government need to allow a public funeral? And what is President Biden's message to Russians mourning both Navalny and the state of their country right now? Well, what President Biden has been struck by, what I've been struck by, is the commentary in the United States that the death of Alexei Navalny is some great show of strength by Vladimir Putin, when in fact, the very idea that he had to lock this guy up, try to muzzle and silence him, and now he's trying to suppress and silence anyone who wants to come out and mourn him, that's a sign of weakness, not a sign of strength. And so from our perspective, what we would like to see is a a situation in which the Russian people and individual Russian dissidents like Alexei Navalny are not subjected to the kind of brutal repression and the conditions that led to Alexei Navalny's death. Um, That's what we would like to see. That's why the president came out and imposed a sweeping set of sanctions this past week to send a clear message about where the United States stands on this issue. And quickly, if his mother wants a public funeral, does the U.S. believe she should get that? I think the the president believes that any mother deserves the funeral for their child that they would like. That should be a basic human thing, not a question of policy. I want to turn to the Middle East. There are reports that negotiators in Paris have agreed to the outline of a new deal between Israel and Hamas to free hostages in Gaza in exchange for a multi-week ceasefire. Can you confirm whether that outline has been agreed to? And if so, what does it look like? Well, it is true that the uh, representatives of Israel, the United States, Egypt and Qatar met in Paris and came to an understanding among the four of them about what the basic contours of a hostage deal for temporary ceasefire would look like. I'm not going to go into the specifics of that because it is still under negotiation in terms of hammering out the details of it. Uh, There will have to be indirect discussions by Qatar and Egypt with Hamas because ultimately they will have to agree to release the hostages. That work is underway. uh, And we hope that in the coming days we can drive to a point where there is actually a firm and final agreement on this issue. But we will have to wait and see. You use the word hope. Are you hopeful that this time there will be a deal? 
you know, there's been a lot of toing and froing, so I'm not going to make predictions uh, and, and I'm not going to kind of put percentage chances on it. What I am going to say, though, is that the United States position in this is clear. We would like to see this deal get done. We would like to see the hostages returned, including American hostages. And we would like to see that temporary ceasefire, which will alleviate the suffering of the people in the Gaza Strip, uh, innocent okay. civilians, women and children. So we are telling everyone, including the Israeli government, that it, it is our firm position that every effort be exercised mm -hmm. to get to this agreement and then we can move forward okay. from there. Jake, before I let you go, I have to ask about uh, what happened this past week with the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. He outlined a vision for post-war Gaza. It would keep indefinite Israeli military control over the West Bank and Gaza maintain a buffer zone uh, along the border with Israel and Egypt, give Israel complete control over entry and exit into the Gaza Strip. Now, an Israeli official told CNN that the plan was aligned with the U.S. Is that true? Does the White House see this as a realistic proposal? Well, frankly, Dana, I haven't had the, any Israeli officials send that plan to me, so I'm not going to speak to that plan. Our position is very clear about what we expect with respect to the future of Gaza and our overall vision uh, for the future of the relationship between Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, we have laid out in detail, both publicly and privately, where we are on that. And I look forward to hearing more directly from the Israeli government what their intentions are. And from what I have seen in the reporting, I have some concerns. Jake Sullivan, definitely want to get back to you when you do see the actual plan. Appreciate you being on this morning. Thank you. And another big win for Donald Trump. Texas Governor Greg Abbott will join me next. Then, does President Biden have a Michigan problem? I'll ask Governor Gretchen Whitmer about the protest vote in Michigan. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to State of the Union. Donald Trump swept Republican contests in the Northeast, the West, the Midwest, and now last night, the South, where he notched another landslide victory against his remaining rival, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. But Haley says she's not dropping out. Here with me now is a top Trump supporter whose border policies have done a lot to shape this year's political debate. Texas Governor Greg Abbott joins me now. Thank you for joining me, sir. Uh, let's start with last night's results in South Carolina. Nikki Haley said that 40 percent is not some tiny group. 
there are huge numbers of voters in our uh, in our Republican primaries who are saying they want an alternative. That is her quote. Is she right? Is her level of support a warning sign for Donald Trump? Listen, uh, in politics, a, a 20 point victory is, is huge. Uh, and it's the type of victory that uh, President Trump has been achieving across the country. But last night was even more meaningful because it was a victory by 20 percentage points in a state where Nikki Haley was the governor. So she is beloved more in South Carolina than perhaps any other state in America. And you can you can see uh, the trajectory that President Trump is on. And uh, after uh, defeating Nikki Haley so badly uh, in South Carolina, uh, he's on a pathway to win these other states, uh, win Super Tuesday, uh, and be able to have the nomination clinched uh, by the middle part of March. And so uh, I would say th the win is strongly at the back uh, of President Trump. And uh, as he pointed out uh, in his remarks last night, not even making reference to Nikki Haley, uh, he said that the uh, party truly is unifying. Uh, and you can see it in comparison to, say, his past primaries. Now, listen, the party is far more unified behind President Trump at this particular time than it has been in any other race that he's had. Governor, I want to ask you about what happened in Alabama. This is Supreme Court there ruled that frozen embryos should be considered human beings. That, of course, as you know, prompted three IVF fertility clinics in the state to abruptly pause care in order to avoid potential liability for wrongful deaths if the embryos were to be destroyed. Do you agree with the Alabama Supreme Court that embryos are human beings? Well, listen, obviously there's uh, some uncertainty lingering from this, but candidly, Let's go back to President Trump, because President Trump put out a statement on this uh, that I think a lot of people agree with, and that is a, a goal uh, that we all kind of want to achieve, uh, and that is we want to make it easier uh, for people to be able to have babies, not, not make it harder. Uh, and the IVF process is a way of giving life uh, to even more babies. Uh, and so what, what I think the goal is, uh, is to, to make sure uh, that we can find a pathway uh, to ensure that parents who otherwise may not have the opportunity to have a child will be able to have access to the IVF process and become parents and give life to babies. Uh, and because this is a relatively new issue, we're just going to find ways to uh, navigate uh, laws mm -hmm. and fact situations that are very complicated. Well, let me ask you about your state. Uh, Texas has one of the strictest anti-abortion laws in the country. Are you saying that families in Texas who are using IVF have extra embryo embryos that are frozen, do not need to worry? Well, so you raise fact questions uh, th that are complex that I simply don't know the answer to. Let me give you a couple of uh, examples, and that is, uh, I have no idea mathematically the, the, the number of frozen embryos. Is it, is it one, ten, a hundred, a thousand? Uh, things like that matter. What I, what I don't know is uh, families who may have frozen embryos, what happens if they were done so that a mother could uh, have a pregnancy, but uh, after those embryos were frozen, the mother passes away? What happens mm -hmm. then? Uh, what happens if after the embryos are frozen, the, uh, the, the mother uh, mm -hmm. and, and the husband, uh, they get a divorce? Here, here's my point in telling you that, uh, Dana, and that is these are very complex issues where I'm not sure everybody has really thought about uh, what all the potential problems are 
and as, as a result, uh, no one really knows what the potential yeah. answers are. And I think you're going you're to see states across the entire country coming together and grappling with these issues and coming up with solutions. Yeah, it is incredibly complicated. You said states across the country. Uh, your state is a pretty important one. Will you be urging the legislature to come up with laws that deal with this, uh, th this question and keep IVF legal? So for, for one, uh, I have no doubt that, that Texas will be among the states that will be addressing this issue when, when we can bring together all the different fact scenarios about what could happen. Uh, but also knowing, knowing Texas, listen, as, as you know, uh, Texas is a pro-life state. Uh, and we want to do everything possible that we can uh, to maintain Texas being a pro-life state. But at the very same time, I think Texans agree with what President Trump said, and that is we as a state want to ensure that uh, we promote life, we mm -hmm. bring m more life into the world, uh, and we empower parents uh, to be able to yeah. have more children. Yeah, uh, uh, it is very, very complicated. I want to turn to the border. Governor, you have successfully made blue states pay attention to the migrant crisis by sending tens of thousands of migrants to cities like New York and Chicago. President Biden is considering an executive action to restrict migrants' ability to seek asylum after they illegally cross the border. Would you support that? So, uh, uh, no, uh, because uh, what that would, if he were to grant asylum uh, after migrants cross the border illegally, that would be authorizing illegal immigration and that would cause chaos. But listen, Denim, one thing you mentioned, you said he's considering executive action. Know this, and that is what the president said a couple of weeks ago, that he needed Congress to pass a law for him to be able to take action. That was completely false. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is there are laws on the books passed by Congress of the United States yeah. right now that authorize the executive branch to deny illegal entry if people get here illegally to detain them, uh, as well as to require the president and the uh, presidential administration to build border barriers. The president is not using his executive authority to do any of those things that Congress has already authorized. The president does not need new laws. The president well, needs a backbone to make sure that he, he enforces the immigration laws that are already on the books. Governor, let me just jump in, and, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but our understanding of what the president is considering is restricting migrants' ability to seek asylum. Why not support that? Because, well, let me tell you what I heard you say, uh, and that is I, I heard you say that uh, people who enter the country illegally uh, would uh, be able to go through an accelerated asylum process. Understand this, in the state of Texas, we have 28 ports of entry, and it is illegal in the United States of America for these illegal immigrants to cross between those ports of entry. Right. What the president has to do first is to establish clearly Anybody who crosses the border between a port of entry illegally must be treated in an illegal way subject to arrest. And so the first thing the president of the United States has to do is say no more crossing the border between a port of entry and saying that if you cross the border between a port of entry, you lose your ability to seek asylum in the United States. Uh, before I let you go, do you uh, have any interest in being Donald Trump's running mate? So then, and listen, uh, my focus is solely on Texas. And my interest uh, is, first of all, uh, supporting uh, the president, President Trump, 
getting elected, and that means helping him find the right vice presidential candidate who will help President Trump get elected, and then help him be successful when he does get elected. And I think there's so many people uh, other than myself uh, who are best situated for that. I can best help President Trump by being the leader of Texas, helping him achieve what he needs to achieve in the great state of Texas. Governor Greg Abbott, thanks for joining me this morning. Sure. Thank you, Dana. And some Democrats are planning to cast a protest vote against President Biden in Michigan's Democratic primary on Tuesday. I'll ask Governor Gretchen Whitmer if she's worried next. Welcome back to State of the Union. Michigan's primary is this Tuesday, and it's a key test for President Biden, with some Democrats there warning that they won't back him in order to mark their opposition to his support for Israel. It comes as Michigan's governor and other national Democrats are seizing on a ruling out of Alabama they hope will remind Democrats about the choice they face this fall. Joining me now is Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan and the national co-chair of the Biden-Harris re-election campaign. Thank you so much for joining me, Governor. Uh, let's start with the question of IVF. Republicans are moving really quickly to distance themselves from that controversial Alabama Supreme Court IVF ruling. Alabama's attorney general says he has no intention of prosecuting families or IVF providers. Republicans across the country, now including former President Trump, uh, have come out in support of protecting IVF treatments. Does that undercut the arguments by Democrats that Republicans are going after in vitro fertilization? Hell no, it does not. I mean, we've always known that with the appointments that Donald Trump made to the United States Supreme Court, that IVF, that a woman's ability to make her own decisions about her body, and all the panoply of things that come from that, we're in jeopardy. And so this Alabama Supreme Court ruling is a natural extension of that. And that's exactly why even in a state like Michigan, where we've made huge strides in protecting the right to reproductive freedom, is still very much at risk with a prospect of a second Trump term. Governor, um, part of the issue, and it is IVF is incredibly complicated uh, on a lot of levels. Uh, part of the issue that Republicans are having is that they're kind of trying to twist themselves in knots over the central question here that Alabama's Supreme Court was trying to answer uh, and did uh, of whether embryos should be considered human beings. What do you think? Is is this uh, accurate in, in the way that some people are describing embryos? Should embryos be considered people? I think the government should get out of people's individual personal health care decisions. I think the government has no business or expertise inserting themselves in the middle of a woman and her right to make the choice that is right for her or a family that desperately wants to have a child. We've had uh, the law of the land for 50 years, and now because of Donald Trump's appointments to the Supreme Court and the Dobbs decision, it has created a mess for people. And I think a lot about embryonic stem cell research that is yielding cures for juvenile diabetes or Alzheimer's. That too now is very much at risk because of this extension that we've seen in Alabama in terms of their interpretation. And so the prospect of another four years of, of Donald Trump or a Biden administration that's going to do everything they can to protect 
women's rights and, and science, I think is a, a very stark difference that is, is very real for people now seeing what, what happened in Alabama. President Biden didn't issue a statement on this ruling until several days after it was released. He hasn't been anywhere near as vocal as people like you and other Democrats have. Does he need to get out there and talk more aggressively about this issue? I'll just say I know that this president is the one who has been on the front line doing everything in his power to protect a woman's right to make her own decisions about her body and this this medical care that women need all across the country. From the policies that they have um, done through executive action to hosting the vice president here with us this week on a reproductive rights roundtable conversation, they are on the right side of this issue, always have been and will continue to be. And that's why Abortion isn't just on the ballot in a handful of states this year. It is on the ballot for every person in this country this year. And that's why we've got to elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to a second term. You know far better than I do that uh, being on, to use your words, the right side of an issue and communicating about it are, are two different questions. And on that note, uh, you mentioned that you had a meeting with Vice President Harris this past week. My colleague Isaac DeVere reported that you expressed some frustration in that meeting with how the president and the Biden campaign have been talking about abortion rights. What specific frustrations do you have? And was the vice president receptive to your suggestions or even constructive criticism? You know, I wouldn't say frustration. I would say urgency. This is about a, a critical moment in American history for American women and girls and our families and our economy, frankly. Um, there are repercussions from what the Trump nominees of the Supreme Court have done with regard to eviscerating women's ability to make our own decisions about our bodies and, and what is at stake in this upcoming election. So it's really a sense of urgency that I'm hearing as I get across my state, this important state of Michigan in a presidential election, um, and a sense of urgency that I am conveying to all people who want to protect this right um, using you know, the, the language, listening to people, trusting women and um, and fighting for this and making it front and center and very clear for people. Governor, let's talk about the primary in your state on Tuesday. You have been campaigning across Michigan, trying to get out the votes, rallying Democrats behind President Biden. Uh, it is hard to see Joe Biden winning in November without winning your state. Polls consistently show it's at best a toss-up right now between him and Donald Trump, assuming that he is the Republican nominee. If the election were held today, would Joe Biden or Donald Trump win Michigan? Well, we've got a primary on Tuesday, and I'm reminding people, because this is a new thing for Michigan, to have our primary this early. We want, we've done extraordinary work to make it easier for people to participate. You can vote in person nine days before an election now. Having this primary, I think, is one important piece. But we've got nine months until the general election. And I would just share with you, you know, I think polls are important pieces of data. But at this point, during my reelect, you would have thought I was a goner. Everyone was writing my political obituary, and I ended up winning by almost 11 points. So there's a lot of important work that needs to be done here in Michigan. I don't take any of it for granted, and I know that President Biden doesn't either. They've got a real organization here. They're going to work to earn every vote. 
Um, but Michigan voices are, are important and um, I think need to be taken seriously. And I know that President Biden and Vice President Harris are, are taking us very seriously. One of the tests of uh, what is going to happen in November could come in this primary on Tuesday. And the question is how deep Democratic divisions are over a lot of issues, the biggest of which I think in your state is the war in Gaza. Uh, some of the leaders, very vocal, uh, respected leaders inside your state, Rashida Tlaib is one of them, they're pushing Democrats to vote uncommitted on Tuesday instead of voting for President Biden in order to send a message and to protest uh, what the president is doing. This is a real serious campaign uh, by people like Rashida Tlaib and others. How many uncommitted votes do you think we're going to see on Tuesday? How worried are you? Well, I'm, I'm not sure what we're going to see on Tuesday, to tell you the truth. I can tell you this, that um, Michigan has been so fortunate to be the home of a robust Arab, Muslim, Palestinian um, community and a robust Jewish community. We've lived in harmony as neighbors for decades, and there's a lot of pain all across all of these communities um, because of what's happening halfway around the world. I know that um, we've got this, this primary and we will see differences of opinion. I just want to make the case, though, that it's important not to lose sight of the fact that any vote that's not cast for Joe Biden supports a second Trump term. A second Trump term would be devastating, not just on fundamental rights, not just on our democracy here at home, but also when it comes to foreign policy. This was a man who promoted a Muslim ban. This is, I think, a very high-stakes moment. I am encouraging people to cast an affirmative vote for President Biden. I understand the pain that people are feeling, and I'll continue to work to build bridges with um, folks in, in all of these communities because they're all important to me, they're all important to Michigan, and I know they're all important to President Biden as well. Sounds like you're um, preparing for a sizable portion of the vote being uncommitted and sending that protest message to President Biden. You know, Dana, I'm just not sure what to expect. I think, you know, this is our first time going this early in the process. There are a lot of pressures and you never know with the weather. You know, there are a lot of different things that can impact what happens on Tuesday. I do know that we've got about nine months until the general election and we are taking Michigan very seriously as as they should. Michigan's always a state where the election is close. Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan, thank you so much for being here today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dana. With Trump's big win last night, is the Republican primary over? Why is Nikki Haley sticking around? I'll ask her former opponent, Asa Hutchinson, who is going to join our panel after a quick break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.
I have never seen the Republican Party so unified as it is right now. I said earlier this week that no matter what happens in South Carolina, I would continue to run for president. Huge numbers of voters in our Republican primaries who were saying they want an alternative. Welcome back to State of the Union. Donald Trump delivered a decisive win in Nikki Haley's home state of South Carolina. My panel joins me now to discuss. Uh, Governor Hutchinson, thank you so much for being here. You uh, were running against both of them and, and a, many more candidates who were still in the field then. What did you make of her um, argument and what we're hearing from her campaign over and over, which is if she gets uh, close to 40 percent, then that means that there is a very big part of the Republican Party that still doesn't want him. Does that kind of comport with what we're actually seeing? Well, I think it's true. And uh, I think she reflected it last night. Uh, even though she didn't win, she was 20 points behind. It was a big night for Donald Trump. Uh, he won in South Carolina, uh, where Nikki Haley was uh, governor. But she got 40% of the vote right at it. And she's clear that she's going to go on into Super Tuesday in Michigan. She lays out she's going to be campaigning in Massachusetts, uh, will be in Michigan, and will be uh, continuing. So you to think campaign. she should stay in? I think she should stay in, and she's clear that she's staying in through Super Tuesday, and then she's going to evaluate it. Uh, so she's being very realistic about it. Super Tuesday is just ten days away. The challenge is that she did everything she could in South Carolina. She went on the attack against Trump. She. Uh, spent 10 times the money on TV as Donald Trump, uh, and she uh, did all the rallies and campaigning, and she got 40% of the vote. So she wants to continue through Super Tuesday, but it's got to accelerate because you run into the delegate wall. And the delegate wall is March 5th, so yeah. she's got to prove herself. Yeah, I think there's very low likelihood that Nikki Haley winds up becoming the Republican nominee. I know, bold, bold prediction. <laughs> uh, but I do think her continued presence in this race is allowing that segment of the Republican Party who is still in the party but really wants to turn the page to make their voice heard. By putting up a number like 40%, you are not winning. There's no way to spin that as a win. But it suggests that statements like, if you're not with the MAGA movement, get out. If you donate to Nikki Haley, you're kicked out of our party. Those sorts of things are unproductive. Politics is about addition, not subtraction. There is a not insignificant part of the party that is very worried about Donald Trump. It's not a majority. He's going to be the nominee almost certainly. But that segment of the party does need to be taken seriously and not alienated. Well, I this morning was thinking, what if this was on the Democratic side and it was a female candidate running for president? What would I um, want her to do? And we kind of had that in 2016 with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And I would have told her to stay in the race if she could, if she had the money, if you had the infrastructure run. Like we live in a democracy. That is what democracy is about, that people who want to run for office can run for office until they can't anymore. And the voters get to decide. I do think 40 percent is a significant amount to say for basically an incumbent president like Donald Trump to be able to get. Now, it is a little bit of, you know, pie in your face because it is her home state. Uh, but we knew this would be a challenge. And so if she has the money, go ahead, stay in, have the debate. I think it's an important debate. We know what MAGA extremism could look like for our country. Um, I'm glad she's starting to take him to task. I think it's a little too late, though. Adrian. Yeah, look, I think Nikki Haley should stay in, and I think Donald Trump had a really bad night last night in South Carolina. Obviously, this is Nikki Haley's home state, but he only got 60% of the vote. And that is a, basically Republicans are saying, 
at least in South Carolina, 40% of them are saying, I don't want Donald Trump to be my nominee. We've also seen polling that suggests that over half, well over half of Republicans who are supporting Nikki Haley would not support Donald Trump in a general election. So not only does she have every motivation, in my view, to at least stay in through Super Tuesday, as the governor suggests, but also she is clearly trying to make a mark for herself going into 2028. She's taking a gamble that Trump is not going to be the president, and I completely agree with her. I don't think he's going to win this election. I think Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are going to get reelected, and she wants to take on the mantle of the GOP going into 2028. She can do that by staying in this race and continuing to make sure that he underperforms where an incumbent should in a GOP primary. Yeah, and, and the question is, uh, Republicans like you, obviously, we have seen, based on the, the way that the primary uh, process is going, that there aren't enough of Republicans like you who just do not want Donald Trump in any way, shape or form. Would you vote for, for Joe Biden? I mean, would that be something that you or people of your ilk would do? Because that's no. the question about that 40 percent. <laughs> My ilk? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the answer is no. Uh, you know, I believe we have to have an alternative to Joe Biden. And I think that raises the question as to where do you go? Uh, we want to go and fight in the convention. Uh, and this is something that has to worry Donald Trump, uh, that he didn't succeed last night in closing the deal. Now he's got to face Super Tuesday and you're going to see delegates that's going to move to Nikki Haley. Uh, and you're going to you're not going to know what's going to happen beyond that. But there's going to be a bulk of delegates right now that's going to go to the convention supporting Nikki Haley. That's going to be expressing we want to go a different direction. And the question is, uh, do they bolt? Do they go to a third party? Do they stay in there? Do they unify behind uh, Donald Trump? And that's on Donald Trump to try to bring the party together. And it's on Joe Biden and the Democrats to try to somehow find a way to, to pull some of those voters in. They're obviously trying. I mean, much more in the past week than we have seen. And I'm sure it's just going to be uh, stepped up even more so in the coming weeks. Yeah. So this is the interesting thing about building the coalition, because if you are a never Trumper, a Republican or an independent, if you want to persuade them over, you can do that, but not at the cost of losing your base and conceding on issues. So the Biden campaign is going to have to play dance, a real delicate dance to figure out how to keep the persuade some of those folks who do not want Donald Trump to come over as we did in 2020, yeah. but also make sure your base shows up. He is trying. He, Donald Trump, is trying to persuade uh, black voters, particularly uh, black men, to come to his. I heard that big sigh. <laughs> Uh, listen to what he said to black conservatives at a uh, speech in South Carolina on Friday night. The black people like me because they have been hurt so badly and discriminated against. And they actually viewed me as I'm being discriminated against. We've all seen the mugshot. And you know who embraced it more than anybody else? The black population. These lights are so bright in my eyes that I can't see too many people out there. But... Uh, I can only see the black ones. I can't see any white ones. I, I don't even know what to say. I mean, if he's trying to get more black voters on his side, I don't think that moment last night is, is doing the job. I mean, look, there's no question that over the last few cycles, not just the presidential, but in some of the midterms, you know, our coalition has shifted. We have lost some diverse voters. Uh, but I believe at the end of the day, when you look at all of these issues, especially the, the choice issue, the economy is doing 
a lot better than sometimes people give a credit for it, thanks to Joe Biden, uh, we're going to be able to keep more of our coalition together from 2020 than it may outwardly appear at this point. Stand by for one second. Let me just get Kristen in on this. Yeah, he's correct that he's doing better among black men. I to be as diplomatic as possible, he has misdiagnosed what has driven that. That in fact it is for a lot of voters feeling like Joe Biden hasn't delivered on promises around the economy, et cetera, that have opened their possibility of, hey, maybe I'll give Donald Trump a second view. I think he is very incorrect about the why. Donald Trump is the epitome of privilege. And when black voters hear him speak to us that way, it's disrespectful and it's condescending. He also sees black voters though through the lens and what she is talking about. From the beginning of the exonerated five when he called for their execution in Central Park, even though they have actually been proven to be innocent, to this moment, he looks at black people through a lens of criminality, through a lens of poverty, and not through a lens as someone who he wants to be partners with. As some, He rather looks at them as someone he can just play in their face and think that they will show up. Yes, some black men are starting to go to the uh, Republican Party, but I will also say, I saw some black men in 2020 who were on the fence about Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And after he said that in South Carolina, they were like, you'd be a fool to vote for Donald Trump. Final word, real quick. Well, we have a great opportunity to reach out to African-American voters. Donald Trump is not the right messenger to do that. Uh, and so uh, we've got to be careful. You got to expand the base. Uh, Donald Trump showed last night in South Carolina he's not winning in, in, with independents or bringing in the African-American votes. Okay, great discussion. Thanks for being here, one and all. We're gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to State of the Union. We are waiting for Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to speak at any minute. He is expected to have a press conference uh, as that country marks two years since Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. As we wait for President Zelensky, I want to go to Nick Payton Walsh, who is CNN chief international security correspondent. Hi, Nick. Uh, as we wait for the president, I know you've been on the phone with your sources. You've been reporting from Ukraine uh, for the last you know, two years, uh, but especially the last few days. Uh, what can we expect to hear from him? Yeah, look, we've seen over the last hours all of his officials, prime minister, defense uh, minister, essentially laying out Ukraine's case here, the problems it's facing, the needs it has for extra Western aid, complaints about commitments of aid, not equaling deliveries, how about half Nick, of forgive the me stuff for interrupting. turns up late, complaints. Nick, I'm going to interrupt you. We, we are going to go to President Zelensky in Ukraine now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.